Good morning. This is Trina Green with Parents and Liberation. I'm here with Maya Williams, editor and contributor and author of Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines. Thank you, Maya, for joining me this morning. Thank you. So Maya is an editor of Revolutionary Mothering. She's an author. She's an international traveler and organizer from Cairo to Ecuador, Mexico, Palestine. She's done print and radio journalism internationally. She's produced and directed a theater program for community folks. She's a doula, a poet, a writer, and her most radical work is being a mother. So welcome, Maya, to the podcast. Could you tell me more about who you are? Well, I think you did a really good job. Um, The thing I would uh, add is that, you know, I became a mothering because I was doing community organizing and community building with really amazing mothers. Um, And that was my inspiration for wanting to be a mother myself. I worked in um, Palestine, um, and then I worked a bit in the Congo. And that was what inspired me, working with those women and seeing the ways that mothers um, are at the center of their community and the way that they're the ones who are really doing the community organizing and holding it all down and so on and so forth. That was part of the inspiration of me wanting to be a mother myself. So that's probably about it. You said that they held it all together and hold everything down, and there's a piece in the book, uh, Revolutionary Mothering, where you actually talk about the birthing process and mothering as, like, breaking us up, that, like, we actually have to break apart to help us rebuild. And so can you tell me a little bit about that, like, that breaking and cracking apart? Well, what I'm basically trying to say in that piece is that sooner or later in being a mother, whether it's during the pregnancy or the birth or in, you know, the taking care of a baby or even, like, when your kid becomes sort of elementary school years, they become a teenager, just somewhere along that path of being a mother, you will be broken apart. For me, that's, like, me on the floor crying, feeling like there is nothing left. I have nothing left to give. And I think that Mm -hmm. almost every mother sooner or later gets to that stage that it just breaks you. And to me, whenever that happens, it's a birthing process. That is a moment of being traumatized. And that is actually a moment in which we can make some choices. In the healing from that breaking apart, in the healing from that trauma, we can choose either to become harsher, angrier, and more bitter, and more closed off, and more controlling of other people. Or we can make that moment to see that, okay, I am breaking apart. I have been broken apart. This is actually an opportunity for me to be able to reach out and become more open, more community-oriented. It can be a pathway for us to be able to relate to our children and to other mothers and to be able to create community even more so because we've had this incredibly human moment. That's what I was trying to say. Is on the one hand, this is really, really hard. <laughs> like, it's really, it can, it does really beautiful, amazing moments, and it can be really, really hard. And I feel like we don't get to talk about the trauma of becoming a mother. We don't get to talk about the trauma of being a mother very often. And on the other hand, that trauma can actually be the ground 
be the soil in which we sow very different types of seeds for how we want to raise our children and how we want to create community. That totally resonates on so many levels. If you say the breaking down and the trauma is the opportunity to be reborn, I have been reborn so many times, and my son (laughs) is only seven years old. (laughs) Um, So I totally remember those moments of feeling broken. And you're right, right? Those are opportunities to open up to see new possibilities and that we do have choice. And I think a lot of times when we think about trauma, we think about the negative outcomes. I really appreciate the positive refrain that even from trauma, we have opportunities, we have choices to restructure, to start anew, to rebuild from the fracturing. We have an opportunity mm-hmm. to rebuild something new and to plant new seeds in the soil. And just the formation and the development of this podcast was from a place of brokenness. I started to see myself parenting from a place of fear, and I didn't like it, and I felt Mm. helpless, and I felt like I couldn't do anything about it, like, oh, all of these young black boys are being killed and murdered. There's nothing I can do to protect my son. He's coming home from school with these experiences of, like, not wanting to be black anymore. He wants to be white. Mm. You know, there's all of these experiences, and I've made choices to put him in a better place, and there's, there's still repercussions and consequences that were not intended. And so I felt like, dang, there's nothing I can do. And so, yeah, this this podcast is an opportunity to be reborn and to think about my parenting in a different way and it allowed me to open up to more community, to invite more folks in, to create a new way of thinking about parenting. And so I really appreciate that, that frame about the breaking apart and the rebuilding in a positive way because that is exactly what this is. And in the introduction to the book, you discuss a binary of we have to let go and also hold on at the same time. Can you tell me how you do the both and and what were you getting at at that point? (laughs) Right? I feel you. How do you do it? I'm not going to say it's a struggle, but I will definitely say it is a constant thinking process, you know? You know, okay, so there are certain things that I sort of tell myself, right? There are certain scripts. One of them I have to I had to remind myself from day one, and I think any time I've ever forgotten it, I've made bad choices. So I just go back to it, which is that babies are meant to survive. Not every baby, okay? It's not like a universal or absolute. Yes, there are forces out there that would very much like it if our children did not exist, and I will get to that mm-hmm. in a second. But I mean, just on a general bodily level. Children have an extraordinary instinct for survival. I put that in there first and foremost. The second thing that I I remind myself is that the important thing for me is that my daughter and I have a very close, intimate communication. I have worked very hard to unlearn some of the things I learned from my parents and my grandparents and to make sure that my daughter knows that, like, I am the safe harbor that you come to no matter what. Like, if I say you can tell me anything, then I have to be the person who can accept you telling me anything. Like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to create the kind of relationship where she didn't want to tell me things because she thought I might get upset, you know? Or she didn't want to tell me things because she thought she might get in trouble. Like, mm-hmm. I grew up with more classical black parents. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I know what you mean. 
<laughs> you might have to explain who, that for audience listeners who don't know what that means. I, I, grew up, I mean, my mother is a very loving woman. My grandmother is a, was a very loving woman. I loved them to death, and I would say that I definitely grew up being afraid to tell my mother and or my grandmother things because I would get in trouble or they would get upset or something huge was going to happen, and it was like it was just better if I worked some things out on my own. And when I look back, Mm -hmm. I do wish that there were things that I could have felt really comfortable going to my mother with and knowing that she was going to take it in the spirit of openness and listening rather than criticism and judgment. So I work really hard to unlearn those patterns and really, really sit down and listen every day all the time so that when something does happen and it has, you know, there's been times when my daughter has had things happen to her. People have said things to her that have been like really questionable. And she, and I've been really happy that she came to me and told me about them. That's something that's very important. I mean, children just, they are going to be afraid of getting in trouble. And the other thing I do, which is part of that as well, is I've made sure in my head that I also let my daughter know and I let myself know that I am the person who the rest of the world may not want you to exist. I mean, I don't tell her that, you know, but the rest of, you know, the world out there might be difficult and strange and sometimes weird to have to navigate, but I will always have your back 110%. There has to be one person in my daughter's life who has her back. And she's not, and I'll be honest, she's not a upper middle class white boy where all of society wants her to succeed. Sometimes I go out in the world and I'm just amazed by, by like the amount of sort of like invisible but their support that certain parts of our society get. People just want certain people to succeed. They, they see their potential, you know what I mean? They, they give them a job even though they're not qualified. Well, that's not going to be my right. kid, clearly. So, um, you know, I tell her, like, I am the one person who gets to be affirming. I am the one person who gets to see that she is brilliant. I am the one person who makes sure that her interests and her needs and her wants are prioritized. And I may be the only person in the world doing that, but she gets one, and that's me. You know, other people Mm. get, like, a whole society for them. So those are, like, Mm. I mean, those are, like, the, the ground under which I try to have a relationship with my kid. You know, I give her probably more freedom than the average nine-year-old gets, but I do that, and I try to make sure that we have a really close communicative relationship. Like, it has to be a balance somehow. Like, I need to know what's going on, and I need to, and I need to trust you to figure out for yourself what your own boundaries are. That's what I mean by it's like a balance. Like, I'm never getting... <laughs> Either I'm making the either I'm making the boundaries too little, or I'm giving her too much, or I'm actually trying to like learn too much about what happened today, or I'm not asking enough questions. But I do feel like even though I I don't ever get it perfect, like at least I'm in there in the game trying. I learned a lot of that. You know, we lived in Cairo. And Cairo is a city of 20 million people, and it's huge, and it's, and it's not the safest of places to raise a kid. And I couldn't just, like, keep her in the house all day, every day, you know? Like, like she needed to have a life. So I had to, like, figure out how to be in this city that's really not safe and to still give her a, the freedom and the opportunity that she needed so that she could 
you know, grow and develop as a person. And that's where I kind of like, I kind of got these principles kind of down and been trying to live by them ever since. We'll see how I do in the future. <laughs> Probably in three years I'll be like, forget ever, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, you mentioned when you were on the panel, you mentioned that raising a child in the States is, it's harder than raising a child um, internationally. And so you learn these principles when you're in Cairo. Do they still work the same here in the States? And what do you think the difference in experiences as far as like raising your daughter here in the States versus all over the world? I think the principles still make still work the same, but I think that they look different on the ground. And some of that's better for her and some of that's worse. You know, okay, so... My point about Cairo not being safe is that Cairo is just a physically unsafe city. At the time, not now, but in 2011, 2012, tear gas was a regular part of the week. Like once a week, there was just tear gas. That's just, that's just how we rolled on Fridays, you know? Um, it's just a city in which there's just so many people, and, and it, it's always packed and crowded, you know? It's just so massive. Now, what made living in Cairo easier in terms of raising a child is that it's a city, it's a culture, North Africa is a culture in which people are really used to having kids around, you see. So it was really, I could take my daughter out with me and take her places and hang out with her in quote-unquote adult spaces and no one is better than I because I had my kid with me. You know, I. So you're saying was, the states are not kid friendly? <laughs> no, the states are not kid friendly at all. Like it's really strange because on the one hand, probably physically it's safer. Like all the playgrounds, you know, are all made out of plastic, and like you couldn't hurt yourself if you wanted to. But then if you go into work, you're supposed to like pretend like you don't have a kid, and you don't. Right. You can't just get flex time, and you can't just bring your kid into the office and be like, yeah, whatever, you know. It's not like mm. and you, you, you can't, you know, if I want to go out with my friends, I have to think about what's the restaurant we're going to and will they allow the kids at this hour and so on and so forth and blah, blah, blah. I don't have to, like, she's fine. It's the places, the struggle, like everything else around us assumes that, that children have a very specific type of life and you are doing damage to your child if you don't live that life. You know, yeah. and the same thing, like, you know, when we lived in Cairo, we didn't have a, always a lot of material possessions or a lot of furniture or whatever, and nobody even thought about it. Like, no one even, whatever. Like, she was safe. She was full. You know, we had the basics. That was enough. And then moving back to the West, I realized there's a huge amount of material consumption you are required to do in order to be seen as a good parent. Like, the amount of things you are, you are supposed to own. It's just outrageous mm-hmm. to me. And right. if, you, if you aren't middle class, then you can't be a good parent automatically. You know, this is all of these, like, the way that the U.S. is structured mothering and childhood, I feel like adds this incredible amount of stress on parents um, to... I mean, I know I feel that stress. I know. I yeah. totally feel <laughs> that stress. Like, I try to plan things when I won't have my son... Because I'm thinking about it from like, oh, he won't be comfortable. But I think you're giving me a frame that it's not even about him. It's about, well, that space wasn't created for him. So going to a restaurant or going out, I'm like, okay, how will he be entertained? What is he going to do? 
will he become bored? Will he start to, you know, play around and then it, this isn't a place to play? So right, then, exactly. you know, so there's all those things. Like, yeah, I think the state, we have lots of parks and we have lots of things that are created just for children, right? Like go to Chuck E. Cheese for that, um, go to this playland, go to this park. You know, there are, there are many things that are meant for people with children or for children. Um, and the rest of the places are adults. <laughs> and so, oh, you have right. a child, you're supposed to be going to that birthday party, not to this lovely dinner here. <laughs> right, exactly. Where I have to say, I mean, in part, I've, I've been really, uh, by the time my daughter got to like four, I would say, maybe five, um, she, and, and she grew up going to cafes and restaurants and hanging around adults a lot, especially because she's an only child. So there's a certain amount of that where, like, she is relative. She will entertain herself for a certain amount of time in adult company. But also, when she would get up and walk around, like, I mean, this this goes back to the safety issue. So let's say I was having dinner with friends, which I did almost every night, you know, like, at a restaurant. So, because that's what you do in Cairo. Not everybody, but, like, that's one of the things that you do is that you go out to eat a lot more in, in Cairo than you do in the States. It's also cheaper. And, you know, Teresa would sit there and she'd eat her food or whatever, and sometimes she'd have, like, her coloring book and she'd color in it, and then she'd get kind of bored and she'd start, like, walking around. And she'd walk outside and she'd hang outside for a while outside of the restaurant and just and on the sidewalk and watch people. And then she'd come in for a few minutes and she'd go back outside. And the thing is that I didn't have to really worry about her coat doing that because every person around kind of automatically had half an eye for her not just what I mean by that is like I knew if I ever went outside and I was like oh where's my daughter everyone in that vicinity would know who I was talking about and could tell me where she was right then because they'd all kind of been watching her because she was a kid you know and um, I think in the states that would be really scary right like I hear folks I hear the frame, everybody's watching her. It's so scary, right, that everyone's right. watching her. There's, like, this different sense of, like, it's not communal. It's individualistic. Everybody's for themselves. You, you have your small nuclear family. You take care of your children. It's your responsibility. And- right. But, you know, I wouldn't feel like – I definitely didn't feel like people were judging me, like, oh, you don't know what your kid is. I didn't feel like I had made some huge error because, like, that's a kid, and sometimes kids wander away. I don't know. It just felt, it just was a very different energy around it. And, and we still do it here, which is, you know, but I think it would be, I've noticed that we're one of the few parents who have children our age who do that, you know? Right. Like, I, yeah, really, I've I totally noticed don't that. don't do that. That brings me back to the conversation that we started at the panel in Los Angeles. When I told you I was parenting from fear and I wanted to protect my son, what could I do? And you're like blunt, brutally honest answer was, well, the world isn't safe. It was like very matter of fact, like, but I just want to let everyone know in the room <laughs> that the world isn't safe. And it was kind of like, boom, we know that it's not like it's not the truth. And at the same time, like, I'm the parent who like won't let my kid walk around the block because I can't see him and I'm worried that something could happen. And I think you have a different frame. I don't know if it's because you're living outside of the States. I think it's just an orientation. So what is your orientation to the world that gives you the amazing 
vantage point that the world is not safe and that does not cause fear or cause you to shut down. It actually helps you to expand more. And then what do you think makes other folks, such as myself, what conditions us to believe that we can protect? I mean, you said earlier that babies are meant to survive and children are meant to, to thrive. And all that time you were saying that, I was like, but there's so much in the world trying to take them out, right? Like I feel like I'm supposed to be, like that's my duty to protect. Um, what has helped you like let go of all of that if you ever had it at all? Well, I do think it's our duty to protect. Like I'm going to go to the end of the question in the beginning. I think that it is my duty to protect. And if someone says something to my kid, if you freaking look at my kid wrong and you catch me in the wrong mood, you will um, get the fullness. <laughs> I will let you know in such a full way exactly where you can go. Um, <laughs> like I, I was joking with friends of mine the other day and I was like, you know, I'm kind of half Claire Huxtable, half hit me, hippie mama. Like, you know, part of me is just like boho and so on and so forth, and part of me will really let you know in words and action if you come anything for my kids. Okay, let me explain to you how this is going to work. Like, this is going to, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, so that's the one half. The other half is, okay, I'll be honest. When I first understood that I wanted to have a child, I was working in war zones, and I actually got pregnant um, working in, I was working in Palestine in 2006, and Israel was bombing Lebanon. It was during the Israeli-Lebanese war, and Israel at the same time was also bombing Gaza, and I was in Palestine. And let's just say, as I'm saying, we were under, like, very difficult conflict circumstances, and I woke up one day and realized I was pregnant. And, like, I was thinking, okay, how am I going to raise my kid? How am I going to have a kid and raise my kid in Palestine? And there's a war going on. There's another war going on. And I live in a freaking war zone. And then I was like, you know what? Everybody around me has kids. And everyone has huge families. And everyone raises their kids here. And my kid will be raised with just as much safety as every other kid I pass by in the street. Probably, let's be honest, with more because she'll be a U.S. citizen. So who am I to sit here and say anything? And I think that because that's kind of how I came into it, I always said, okay, it's not my job to make my kid safer. I'm saying something a little bit controversial. It is not my job to ensure that my daughter is 110% safe at every moment because it's impossible. It's not my job because I'm not sure if that's actually the best thing for her. But also, the work that I agree to do is work that is, at times, dangerous or has a risk attached to it. And that work includes me being a mother. I, in part, became a mother because these were the communities I wanted to work in solidarity with. And I was working with mothers who were living under risk with their children, and if I'm going to really work in community with them, I have to accept that my daughter will be under a certain amount of risk, maybe even more than she would be under if I took every ounce of every piece of little privilege I had and threw it at making sure that she had a gate around her at all moments. That's kind of my orientation in it. The controversial, wow. yeah. obviously, is it that is I've had con- definitely con- 
<laughs> is the people will be like, yeah, but if Palestinian mothers had the choice, they were going to raise their children in safety too. And I'm like, you know, I was, when I first got to Germany, I was living in Berlin for a year, and, I, and I'd have conversations with people would be like, yeah, but, you know, if Palestinian mothers could choose, they would come here and they would li- raise their kids in safety. And my response is, actually, the majority of mothers I've known do not want to move to Europe. The majority of mothers that I've known do not want to live in the States. The majority of mothers that I've known do want to live in safe, they want their own communities to be safe. They don't necessarily want to leave their country and their community and their land and their family in order to come to Europe. They want, like, and, mm. and plenty of people I know who have the choice between leaving and staying choose to stay because they really do believe that safety comes from community and comes from being close to their land and being close to their family more so than it does from the structural privileges that come from living in the West. Wow, that totally <laughs> resonates. And no, no judgment because I think, I mean, just to be transparent and honest, I think I'm the parent who did the opposite. And so I have all my own internalized um, guilt and shame about my choices um, because I did choose the opposite. Um, so I'll share my story just to Please. counterbalance Yours. Um, so I was born and raised in South Central Los Angeles, which is not Cairo by any stretch of the means, but a very <laughs> a violent community in its own right. You know, I was born in the 80s, and there was the crack epidemic, the, all the other drugs mm-hmm. ran through the community, and with the war on drugs became an increase in incarceration, so that also kind of ran through my family. A lot of the males in my family being incarcerated for petty drug offenses. And so growing up with that as the backdrop, like wanting to find pathways out. And so my education kind of got me out. Like I went to college, I had all this access, you know, my light skin privilege totally got me further than other folks who don't necessarily look like me or sound like me um, in my family. And, and so when I had my son, um, I was living in South LA and I was working in community in South L.A. Um, I had went from UCLA to, like, different parts of West L.A. and was living there. And then I was like, oh, you know, I really wanted to do this community-based work in South Central. And so I wanted to go back to where I was raised. And so I actually moved back into that community. And I was raising my son there. And I was sending him to schools there. And I didn't feel like they were giving him the attention that he needed. And he wasn't developing and academically. And I had all these visions about, you know, what it meant. And as he was getting older and he wanted to start walking to the park and then we couldn't go to that park because that park wasn't safe. And we couldn't go to that park because it was drug infested. You know, there are all these things that we uh-huh. would like ride the bike around the block. And I'd be like, okay, well, we have to be back in by a certain time just because of all the safety precautions. Um, and I had the ability to move elsewhere. And so there was lots of pressure. Like, are you putting your kid at risk for your work? Are you putting your kid at risk for your choices to do this work? Like, when you have the opportunity to move your child elsewhere to a safer environment. And so a lot of my family started to move southeast into more suburban areas out of the city. And so I followed suit. And so I moved into Orange County. And so I'm here now. And now my son goes to a diverse school. And I put diverse in the quote marks because 
diverse means there's a range of kids, but when you look at how many African-American children there are, you know, he's like one of two in his classroom. And so, so yeah, he's at a school that's better resourced. We can walk down the street. We can go to the parks without necessarily worrying. I can let him run and play. And the other consequences are there's a lack of cultural awareness. So all the kids in the school aren't black or brown, so he doesn't necessarily see himself reflected in the teachers or in the other students, or in the parents. And so, like, I have to be super diligent about being a volunteer at his school once a week and showing up for all of the parent after-school options and putting him in programs and making sure that he goes and sees his people on the weekend and that he sees his black and brown folks so that he has a sense of his cultural identity. And so, like, there's a, there's a give and a take. And so the mm-hmm. situation, like, after being at the school for a couple of years, after kindergarten, coming home and saying he wanted white skin, because all the other kids had white skin and they were cool and he wanted to be cool. Um, you know, it's the trade-off is the consequence for choosing to leave versus choosing to stay. It's making mm-hmm. me emotional. No, I mean, I, please don't get me wrong when I say that. I also made choices. I, I, like, you know, I made choices at various times in which I felt like the situation we were in was too dangerous or, had, or was going to get too dangerous. And so we had, like, we had to make some choices about staying and leaving. And I also felt a lot of guilt, especially because I was leaving, like, my friends, you know, like, <laughs> like people who didn't right. have the opportunity to leave. I was like, right. I'm out. Y'all are going to have to stay. Like, you know, and things actually did get really bad after I left. Like, I was right in the fact that it was going to get bad. And people were emailing me and being like, oh, can you help us out? And I'm like, I really can't. And I'm in a different country at this point. This is when I went to Germany, especially Um, because there was a coup two months after I left um, and a huge massacre that happened that summer, and I left in May, and the massacre happened in July and August. Mm. Um, So, I mean, please don't get... I'm not saying that as to say that, like, we we are now obligated to move into the most dangerous section of the world. (laughs) My point is that... I think that it, that's what I'm saying. I think that there's, like, a balance. Like, I think... But my my point, I think you, you spoke to it, is that... You know, we make that trade-off and we decide, okay, I'm going to move to this place that's you know, supposedly physically safer. And we trade off and we take, say, okay, I'm no longer going to have to worry about this, 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 and this. We do take on another set of burdens and trials, you know, because I feel the same way. Like, you know, I took Teresa out of Cairo where she grew up. You know, she grew up in Egypt and she felt very comfortable in Egypt. To be perfectly honest, she looks Egyptian. And so she passes really well, and, mm-hmm. you know, she spoke Arabic. And I moved her to a German country where she did not look like people around her, and she did not speak the language, and it was a much harder transition for her. Yeah, we were physically safer, and, yes, that meant I had to deal with a huge amount of, I mean, just, like, I, I don't know when I look back on it. I think I made the right decision, honestly, and... I can't honestly say that I made a less, that, that the situation I was in, I moved to something that was way less stressful and that in the end didn't at least cause some kind of harm, you know? I was going to say, like, I think, I mean, this is kind of looping back to the original conversation about, like, we can't protect our children, right? The world is not safe and we have to make choices. And yeah. sometimes the trauma, right? Like, I was traumatized by all of the potential harms that could happen, and I was broken, and so I made choices. And sometimes those choices come with consequences that make things more safe or less safe, and they come with trade-offs. And so I think it's 
you know, it's kind of beautiful the way the conversation is looping back together, that it is about some of the choices that we make and the trade-offs. And, and I think it gets me to this other quote in the book that she wrote where it says, revolution ain't cute or tidy and neither is mothering, right? Like, these choices right. are not easy. They're not cut or dry. It ain't cute. It ain't tidy. Right. The thing I'm trying to say is I think we all have to make really hard choices. When I say that the world is not safe, what I'm saying basically is is that no matter what choice you make, the world is not going to respond by being safe for you. That's not the world that we were given. But we can still make the best choices that we know how to and forgive ourselves for fucking up. <laughs> hopefully that's Thanks for the invitation too. to forgiveness. Thank you. I mean, it's real. Um, there's a lot of guilt and shame and blame and mm-hmm. internalizing stuff. Or at least I'll say speak for myself. I have a lot of that, and I don't know if other folks that might resonate. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's important to know that there's forgiveness and reconciliation and the opportunity to try again, you know? So just that grace, the grace that we give ourselves in this parenting motherhood journey is necessary. I think so. And I think it's also amazing the way that our children remind us what's actually important. I have one more question, okay. um, which could potentially be controversial. Uh, so this podcast, my vision was for this podcast to be for parents who are parenting black children, um, considering the negative, the many multiple experiences of violence and trauma that happen to black mm-hmm. bodies in the U.S. And in reading your intro to um, Shorelines to Frontlines, you talk about how mothering is an imperative to build bridges across difference. And you, you speak to all of the different mamas that you've worked with across various um, places and times who have shaped the way that you envision mothering and radical mothering and revolutionary mothering. So I guess I would like your feedback reflections about, about me wanting to be really explicit about um, black children and the role of parenting and mothering as the bridge across difference? Well, I just want to say, really, I can make this really quick. Like, I just want to say that um, I center black mothering um, now in my work, that is to say. Now, I have worked with a lot of, with a lot of different communities, and I've been really honored and blessed to be able to work with a lot of different communities, um, uh, Palestinian, Egyptian, um, uh, Zap- uh, Zapatista Mayan, um, so on and so forth. I both center black mothering, even if I'm the only black mother in the room. <laughs> um, and that is because, for a lot of reasons, because I feel like I'm constantly needing to do the work of pushing against anti-blackness, no matter what space I'm in, because I think that uh, black mothering is what informs me you know, I mean, that's just to be honest about where I come from and and, mm-hmm. and how I see the world, and because I don't, because I feel like black mothering gets such a bad rap. Like, mm. I feel like there's so much work that has to be done within our communities and then within sort of the larger world itself, but well, even just within our own communities to be able to to 
to deconstruct what black mothering has meant. Because, you know, black, I mean, and I, when I say black mothering, I do mean specifically like African-American post-slave mothering, you know? That's, mm-hmm. I'll be honest, like I'm being, being very historically specific. Because I feel like there is such a huge denigration of black mothering and of black motherhood and of just black mamas in general. And there is this constant vilification of them. And then we internalize that, you know, and we internalize these sort of neoliberal ideas that what has been a basically uh, breakdown, just a, 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 excuse me, but just a, a the effect from public resources and given into private hands, which means we no longer have access to the basic resources of, of education, of health care, of food, that we start to internalize it and make it our own problem. We can't, we can't, you know, get our shit together. We can't handle our stuff correctly. We can't raise our children correctly. All we do, rather than, you know, I just like this, like everything has been piled and put upon black mothers that I cannot but center them in my work Um, because it is, to me, it is such the opposite of it. It is amazing that our children survive. It is amazing every time a black child survives. I just, it is, considering what they, considering this the genocidal forces they are up against. I feel like right. most people in the world could learn a thing or ten from black mothers who do it in some of the worst of circumstances. And I don't just mean in terms of, like, poverty. I mean just the conceptual and ideological circumstances under which we work. The, Melissa Harris-Perry talks about the cricket, the cricket room that we work in, you know, um, where we, mm-hmm. we live in a world in which we do not even get to – like, we are one of those people – who, who have to create not just positive images, but any images that are reflections of our, like, complexity and our creativity and our survival and our thriving because there is almost nothing out there in the world that shows that. We, and we do that. Mm. I just think black mothers are amazing. <laughs> like, yeah. I could go on. So <laughs> I, have, I think centering black mothers is, is an amazingly radical act because we are so fairly centered in our work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think, I think there's often, and I mean, there's often, I've, I think I was much more guilty of this when I was younger, this like desire in, among black people in general, especially those of us who are quote unquote educated, blah, 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 for us to just prove that we're diverse by like reaching out, you know, into, and that's great, clearly, you know, I love learning languages and I love hanging out with people. And, I think that sometimes we are almost choosing, we're almost running away from who we are in our own blackness because it has been so hard to live inside of it. So mm. I think that there is a real question to be asked of how do we raise black children? That's it. <laughs> that is the question that this podcast is hoping to answer in discussion and conversation with many folks like yourself. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Is there anything you want folks to know, website, where to go to find more information about the book? I know your tour is coming to a close. Um, 
But is there any like thing that you want folks to do to connect up with you to learn more about your work? Yeah, I mean, you can, of course, order the book, Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines, um, from PM Press, or you can get it off of Amazon, or order it from your local bookstore. Um, you can, that we have a website called the bridge called my baby.wordpress.com where you can sort of catch up on what we're doing. And we are on Facebook. We have a page on Facebook called Revolutionary Mothering Love on the Front Lines as well, where we post where you can keep day to day contact on what we're doing. So, any and all of those places, you are more than welcome to hit us up and let us know what you think. All right, so y'all check out that book. It is amazing. Check them out on Facebook because they do on tour right now and they might be in a city near you soon. Thank you, Maya. I really, really appreciate this time. Thank you. Thank you so much.